content to the free music archive. An interactive library of high-quality legal audio downloads. That's at freemusicarchive.org slash curator slash KBOO. You can find all this and more on the KBOO website, kboo.fm. Thanks for listening. Can't get good reception of KBOO on your radio? Just type in www.kboo.fm on your PC or laptop and click on Listen Live. We're just a mouse click away. KBOO Community Radio is now on Venmo. Follow us and send a donation anytime at KBOO Radio. That's at KBOO Radio. Thanks. This is Norman Sylvester, the Boogie Cat. Meow, meow. You're listening to KBOO Portland 90.7 FM Community Radio. Tune in every weekday morning from 5.30 to 7 a.m. for variations on the theme of folk music during KBOO's Folk Strip. Each morning brings you a different DJ and a wonderful variety of acoustic and roots music, both traditional and contemporary. You'll hear the latest from singer-songwriters, happy jigs and reels, bluesy folk, a sea shanty or two, some old favorites, local artists and artists from around the world, a touch of Cajun, a dose of indie, and a smidge of jug band. It's probably the best way on earth to wake up. So let us start your day with a smile. Again, that's every weekday morning from 5.30 to 7 a.m. for KBOO's folk music programs. KBOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBOO in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available at our website at kboo.fm. The Engineering Committee meets on the first Thursday of the month at 7 p.m. This month's meeting will be held online through a public video conference. A public link and phone number to attend the meeting can be found on our website at kboo.fm. Please visit our website to verify if a meeting is being held. This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Early spring wildfires cover parts of North America with smoke. Record temperatures roast the Pacific Northwest again. India and Thailand went into their ninth straight week of unbearable heat, into the mid-40s Celsius, well over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Northeast Italy went underwater as six months of rain fell in 36 hours, hitting the ground baked hard by persistent drought. That's how it was last week during this decade of climate shift. This week you will hear a couple of my best interviews on wildfires, but first I want to explain why I almost gave up. Doing climate science is like war zone reporting. Sometimes the shells land too close. A few weeks ago, my guests reported two significant developments. First, the engine that drives most of global ocean circulation has already weakened. Dr. Matthew England made this plain in our interview. Essential currents around Antarctica have changed due to global warming. The ramifications are massive and global. The second story, spread over two programs, revealed obscene spending and development plans by fossil fuel companies, all fed by the world's largest investors and banks. They know fossil fuel burning wrecks lives and habitats, but they just made hundreds of billions of dollars doing it, and they want to feed that golden goose to make more. From the Arctic to the Amazon, new wells, pipelines, and shipping ports are fully funded to be built during the next seven years. Gas industry executives are clear. They expect to keep shipping methane from their products up to and beyond the year 2050. Somehow they persuaded a few governments to call methane 
clean energy. Never mind unnatural gas production leaks to powerful warming gas methane at every stage of production and distribution. Never mind it is burned into carbon dioxide that lasts hundreds of thousands of years in the heated atmosphere. Earlier in the climate fight, we believed there was time. We expected a decision point, a time frame, when humans would either slash emissions or decide to keep developing, and the rich will adapt somehow, they think. That decision point was always ahead of us, but now it has been made. They have decided. Right out in the open, blessed by governments who claim green awareness, fossil fuel companies have committed us all to a world at least three degrees C hotter than pre-industrial times. So why bother? The future is planned and paid for, but it is not cast in stone. We did not decide to fry the world to make billions homeless. About 60 people in the largest fossil fuel companies and countries decided to continue building their profitable operation. It's like a drug gang. They are supported by hundreds in big banks and investment houses. They donate a lot to politicians. They threaten economic ruin if they don't get their way. But things can be called off. The Disney Corporation just cancelled a billion-dollar project in Florida. In Canada in 2020, Tech Resources cancelled its $20 billion tar sands mine after protests. In 2021, the Keystone XL pipeline was halted when U.S. President Joe Biden revoked a key permit. Just because a few corporations and national companies say they are going to produce dangerous fossil fuels doesn't mean we have to let it happen. Some countries can still vote for change. Others may need revolution. Billions of people depend on stopping the new surge of fossil fuel production. Radio EcoShock When I began to broadcast Radio EcoShock, starting with CFRO Co-op Radio in Vancouver, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere hit an ominous level of 381 parts per million in the atmosphere. On May 9, 2013, CO2 levels in the air reached a level of 400 parts per million, according to NASA. That was a scary time. And this week, the air holds 421 parts per million, according to NOAA, and 423 per the Bloomberg Carbon Clock. We're already well into the danger zone, my friends. Investors and governments can choose to fund renewable energy or fossil fuels. Each of us can make that decision better and faster by reducing our fossil fuel burning. It's hard. You stop flying, but what about when your brother is dying 2,000 miles away? UK author George Monbiot hit this right in his 2006 book, Heat, How to Stop the Planet Burning. In his book presentation in Vancouver, recorded by Radio EcoShock, of course, Monbiot pointed to the thorny problem of love miles. The actions which are causing this problem are actions which hitherto have been considered either entirely innocent or positively beneficial. <coughs> Making a cup of tea for the next door neighbours, picking up your kids from school, flying to New York for your brother's wedding. Under the old pre-climate change moral code, all those were good things morally good things. Under the new moral code demanded by climate change, they're also bad ones. And we find that what climate change does is to present us with the spectacle of two valid moral codes in irreconcilable antagonism. When you look at that last example of flying over to your brother's wedding in New York, you see an instance of what could be the most intractable of all causes of climate change, the phenomenon I call love miles. Love miles are the distance between yourself and the people you love. To redeem those love miles, you must travel. <coughs> and that traveling is the fastest growing cause of environmental destruction. We see in this phenomenon that the planet could be destroyed by love. That's the travel that results from families now spread across continents or even the world. These might be the last fossil fuels you and I burn, until fossil-free flight or bullet trains are available. 
Monbiot suggests we should choose mates living near to us for marriage so that new families can continue to meet without travel. We know during the 50s and 60s, corporate culture encouraged and then demanded families move around the country. The military does the same. Families were split up. And now we know there is a cost to the atmosphere, and that needs to be reversed. Localism may be the survival mode, as it was in medieval times, the last age before coal. If we can't change, you and I, then, like the fossil fuel companies, we have already decided we will keep our ill-gotten gains, our frantic, supposedly easier lives. They can take our fossil addiction from our dead hands, we say, and that may literally happen. That's where science can help. The whole process of science is built on doubt. We realize our grasp of actuality is foggy, it's filled with preconceptions and wishes and superstitions. So we test against the physical world, measuring all sorts of things, checking and rechecking, and then recognizing possible error. That tells us, for example, that wildfire smoke is not neutral for climate change. For years, experts said fires are natural in nature. Wildfire smoke may cool local weather for a few days, but trees are adapted to fire and the forest will regrow. Some said the younger forest would capture more carbon than the mature trees that had burned. That was a cycle, and we don't need to worry about it, so long as homes did not burn down. That comforting narrative is being disproved by new science. Wildfires can change large weather systems. An article published in October 2022 found, quote, The heat and aerosols generated by wildfires in the western United States can intensify severe weather in the central United States. Tornadoes, anybody? Storms? Let's look at boreal forest fires, the giant firestorm sweeping across northern Canada and Russian Siberia. The headline? Study reveals record-high carbon dioxide emissions from boreal fires in 2021. They say boreal fires, which typically account for 10% of global fire carbon dioxide emissions, contributed 23% in 2021, end quote. The Copernicus Atmospheric Monitoring Service reports this year's fires are not as extreme as some previous years. With their satellite eyes, CAMS reports this about fires in Russia, quote, As for central and eastern Russia, seasonal fire activity started in April, but has increased during the first week of May. The data show fires actively burning in a band stretching from Russia's Chelyabinsk region across Omsk and Novosibirsk regions and into the Far East, also affecting Kazakhstan and Mongolia. Despite the increased daily total in these regions of Russia, it is worth noting that the total estimated wildfire carbon emissions for April and May are below average for the period as of May 9th. CAM senior scientist Mark Perrington told the press, The scale and intensity of current fires are reflecting increased fire risk following some weeks of drier than usual conditions. Wildfires are not particularly unusual in the boreal forest spring, and we have monitored fires in both Canada and Eurasia at this time of year in the past, end quote. Parrington has been a guest on this program. By comparison to the worst records, this is not a panic year in their view. But then they say Northern Hemisphere fires this year have the highest carbon emissions since 2019, quote, the CAMS data put carbon emissions from wildfires in Alberta at just over 5 megatons so far this year, which means that the province's carbon emissions are already the highest since the extreme fires experienced in May 2019, in which over 880,000 hectares were burned and the resulting smoke was transported across the Atlantic Ocean, end quote. So forest fires do add carbon dioxide to the atmosphere, and contribute to warming. Whether some of that carbon will be recaptured depends on regrowth of the northern forests, which is not guaranteed given increasing extremes of heat and drought. Sometimes forests never come back. 
Whether or not the carbon is recaptured, record amounts of carbon into the atmosphere from burning forests comes at the very worst time. Time is key here. With only a few years left to stop extinction-level warming, any greenhouse gases from any source pumps up the heat engine that begins to feed itself. Global warming can lead to more and faster global warming. Several scientists here on Radio EcoShock, especially Tim Lenton and Johan Rockstrom, identified dozens of tipping points, those feedback loops that humans can never stop. Four major tipping points are likely to be triggered when the global mean temperature crosses 1.5 degrees C for any length of time. The World Meteorological Organization just issued a press release saying Earth would cross that 1.5 degree mark one of these years within the next five years. With the developing El Nino, that atmospheric milestone could come as early as 2025. We are in a drastic situation. Drastic action is required. The heat goes right down the Pacific coast. All kinds of heat records were broken in Portland, Oregon in early May. Vancouver, cool, coastal Canadian Vancouver, hit 33 degrees C in the suburbs, feeling like 36 degrees or 96.8 Fahrenheit. That would be rare in August there. It does not happen in early May. And all that sounds cool compared to 45 degrees or 113 in Thailand for a few weeks. Japan was just sweating it out. But the G7 leaders there did not discuss global warming. Why would they? What is there to talk about? Everybody at the table has big energy backers. Nobody wants to rock the fragile economic boat. Large-scale society is paralyzed as big changes wash over us. Say, find out about the Extinction Rebellion movement. See what you can do. How bad is it? It's so bad, Harvard Magazine just published an article titled Financing Climate Adaptation and Deciding What to Let Go. Author Jonathan Shaw says, quote, The economic scale of the required economic adaptation is beyond anything the public sector could possibly afford to fund. Triage, cutting losses, is a necessary part of any sensible climate response. Well, of course it is. We all knew it would come to this. The rich elite admits climate change is now unstoppable. We can't save everything, so they presume to set their priorities for the rest of 7 or 8 billion people. Harvard must be saved, of course, even though their multi-billion dollar endowment fund refused to divest from fossil fuels. They invested in wrecking the future of students they allegedly train for the future. Many universities still do although a student-driven divest movement is growing. Keep it up. Maybe this is why multi-billionaires seem to want fascism so badly. They know crowd control will be needed when humans rebel. They need a belief system that allows hundreds of millions of others to be displaced or killed in poorer parts of the world, along with the poor maybe in their own countries. Repeated climate change could lead to a more fair world, or one that is much more unjust. That we don't know yet. I'm working on some interviews with surprising news about how this planet actually works. Those interviews will appear periodically interspersed with replays. You know, along with an overflowing river of climate news, <laughs> I have family members that need help for a week or two. I will be in and out of studio and then back in full production. You can email me with your comments or interview suggestions. Please do. The address is radio at ecoshock.org. Radio at ecoshock.org. I may not respond to everybody, but I do read every single message. Listeners have led me to some great guests. We will hear from one of them now. This interview with Dr. Mike Flanagan is from Radio EcoShock, May 27th, 2011. This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Unreported and uncontrolled fires in Canada's boreal forests burn vast areas every year. 
As the north heats faster than the rest of the world due to climate change, these fires are hotter and wilder, even creating their own weather systems. In a possible sign of the future on May 15, 2011, with only minutes warning, really, the 7,000 residents of Slave Lake, Alberta, were forced to flee a wall of oncoming flames. One-third of the town, including the municipal building and library, burned to the ground. A week later, residents were still living in evacuation centers. Wildfires are back in the news. The recognized expert is Dr. Mike Flanagan, a senior researcher with Natural Resources Canada, an expert for the Canadian Forest Service and professor of wildland fire at the University of Alberta. Dr. Flanagan, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you. Mike, I thought summer was fire season. These big fires in Canada's north so early in the spring, is that unusual? Not for Alberta. We do get spring fires in Alberta. After the snow melts, there's about a four-week window where things are dry on the ground and the vegetation hasn't turned green, it hasn't greened up yet. And during this period, fires are fairly common in Alberta. And could you tell us why was the town of Slave Lake surprised by such a monster fire? Well, I don't want to dwell on specifics like Slave Lake because I don't have all the information on Slave Lake. But what I can tell you is that fires can move rapidly when there's strong winds and dry weather like we've had in Alberta the last few weeks. So fires can move quickly, and if communities are in the path, they are at risk. And I was surprised, uh, you don't need to have a long-term drought to have a fire risk. These forests can dry out fairly quickly, is that right? Well, much of the boreal, especially the boreal shield, has very shallow soils, such that there's a memory of only a few days to a week in those forest fuels. Regardless of how much rain you've had before that, if you have a week of warm, dry, windy weather, you can have a raging inferno. Um, it's the forest fuels that really drives the fire situation. If the fuels get dry, fires can start and fires can spread. And what part does the Rocky Mountain pine bark beetle play in this? Well, I'm, I'm a fire person and not a bug person, but I have done a bit of reading on this, and vast areas of B.C. interior, have, mountain pine beetle has killed lodgepole pine. Now these pine trees die, and they're, they're standing there. Eventually, the wind will blow them over. But while they're standing, their needles go from an orange to a red to a gray. And during these periods, we are concerned about fire behavior, and this is a course of active investigation. In particular, the gray stage, which is you know, three to five years after the death of the tree, the, the needles that are still left can spread quite quickly and cause spot fires. Uh, in advance of the fire, so make a kind of accelerating the fire front. So it's a very dangerous situation if a fire gets up and running in these mountain pine beetle killed stands. And I've read that climate scientists have predicted greater warming in the north, of course, in Canada and Russia and Alaska. Does that therefore lead to more fires or more intense fires? And is that actually happening yet? Yes. And I'll just if I can back up just a little bit, I'll answer that question. There's kind of three or four factors that influence fires. The first is we kind of touched on it, is the fuels and what type of fuel conifers burn easily, deciduous less so, how dry the fuels are important. Ignition, people, and lightning are the main agents of fire starts. And the third factor is weather, which I consider to be the most important. Hot, dry, windy weather are very important to fires. Now, in the future, the climate models, general circulation models, suggest that we're going to be a much warmer world, especially in northern latitudes, Russia, Siberia, Alaska, Canada. And with warmer temperatures come longer fire seasons, as fires will start earlier in the spring and go later in the fall. With warmer temperatures, there'll be more lightning activity. More lightning activity, the more fire starts you have. And the last reason is the warmer it gets, the more evapotranspiration we have, and which means the fuels will be drier unless there's significant changes in precipitation, significant increases in precipitation. And for every degree Celsius warming, you need about a 10% increase in precipitation during summer. So much of northern Canada is looking at 4 to 6 degrees Celsius warming. You need an increase of 46% in precipitation, which the models don't suggest, though our confidence in precipitation is less than temperature, 
the end result is that the fuels are drier, which means it's easier for fires to start and spread. Yes, this is something I've had trouble understanding because I've seen predictions that the northern limits will be actually growing wetter and wetter and in past ages they were even tropical almost uh, humid forests so how do we then get more forest fire activity out of that wet situation with the arctic ocean uh, the ice pack becoming seasonal there will be more precipitation especially in the autumn when the water is still open you get kind of a lake effect or sea effect snowfall or rain event but during the fire season, the warm season, as long as you have periods of drought, you can have forest fires. And with climate change, we expect more extreme weather, more extreme droughts, more extreme flooding. And when those droughts occur, fires can happen. And fires are not just restricted to the forest. We have a new study with uh, NASA looking at tundra fires. And there's been some very large tundra fires in the last few years. And... Um, these appear to be coming more common. And for those who don't know what tundra is, what does that mean for us? Well, tundra, it, it's so cold that trees cannot grow, generally because there's no summer warmth for the seed to be viable and for seedlings to be established. Uh, there's permafrost, that is, underneath the, the organic material, there's ice all year long. And there's, there's grasses, forbs, herbs, and occasionally shrubs, and this is tundra. And there's also, interesting, a lot of hydrates that are stored in the permafrost, and if the warming continues and permafrost melts, these hydrates, methane, will be released, which are very effective greenhouse gases. This is Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith with Canadian fire expert Dr. Mike Flanagan. Mike, how do we know that climate change is involved in wildfires? Who is doing research on this? Well, there's an, a number of people around the world looking at this. In Canada, we've been working on it since the mid-1980s, if you can believe it, which is uh, 25 years now plus. And, you know, we've published work that suggests that the increases we've seen in fire activity in Canada is already the result of human-caused climate change. For example, in Canada, our average area burned in the 60s and 70s was about 1 million hectares a year. Currently, we burn about 2 million hectares a year, which is a doubling. 2 million hectares is about half the size of Nova Scotia, uh, approximately the size of Massachusetts, to give it some context. And we've done a number of studies that suggest by the end of this century, we expect another doubling of area burned. In some papers for Western North America, Alaska, BC, Yukon, increases could be as high as fivefold, so five times more fire than we currently see. That's a whole new landscape for living you're describing. You know, back in November 2007, I interviewed Dr. Tom Gower. He said Canada's boreal forests are no longer a carbon sink. They are a net source of global warming gases. I know that's a huge question, but I want to ask if you would agree with that, and do wildfires add to the carbon burden, or are they kind of carbon neutral? It's actually disturbances like insects and fire that make our boreal forests a carbon source rather than a sink. And the larger aspect is that about 20% of our boreal forest is wetlands or peatlands. And with more drought, these will become vulnerable to burning. And they, they store vast amounts of carbon. And it's kind of a legacy carbon. It's been building up over thousands and thousands of years. And greenhouse gas releases from these peat fires can be significant on the global scale. Previous studies done in Indonesia suggest that peat fires in Indonesia released 20 to 40 percent of global fossil fuel emissions in one year. And the peat reserves, the peat and carbon reserves in Canada and Siberia completely dwarf anything in Indonesia. So if these peatlands begin to burn, they burn already, and they can they go into the ground, they smolder, and they can burn right through winter and then start up again in the spring. With more extreme droughts, more and more of these peatlands could burn and release significant amounts of greenhouse gases, which would feed the warming, a positive feedback, if you like. 
Well, what about wildfires further south? In B.C., the city of Kelowna, with almost a quarter of a million people, has been threatened by fire twice. And if the planet heats up as predicted, well, we had uh, the Russian capital was threatened in 2010. Do you think major cities will be at more risk from uncontrollable fires? Anywhere where there's communities or people in the forest or near, near the bush, they are at risk. And with global warming, climate warming, we expect this risk to increase. And we only have to look around the globe. It's not just a Canadian situation. In recent years, there's been fires in Russia, as you mentioned. The year before, uh, February 2009, there were catastrophic fires in, in Australia. There's been catastrophic fires in Greece, in California. Um, this is a global phenomenon, and uh, it's only going to get worse. Well, how do we need to rethink fires and fire planning in response to that? There's already a few strategies um, at hand to help communities as well as homeowners. It's, in Canada, it's called Fire Smart. In the United States, it's called Fire Wise. And these are guidelines to help homeowners uh, protect their homes. And a lot of it's just common sense. Don't have cedar shakes on your roofs. Most homes build down because of embers falling on the rooftop and the roof catching fire. Uh, also, do not stack firewood against your home. Don't have burnable uh, shrubs near your right adjacent to your house, things like that. But also for communities, building fire guards around the community. And by that, we mean reducing the fuels close to town or the community. And this can be done mechanically by chainsaws and just removing the forest fuels, putting pavement in if you like, or grass and sprinklers. And you can also use prescribed burning to burn the regions adjacent to communities to protect them from fire in the future. So I often say you can have a little smoke now in a managed way or a lot of smoke later in an uncontrolled fashion. Right. Well, as we wrap up, do you have any tips on good articles or websites about wildfires that our listeners could go to? Well, there's the Canadian Forest Service has an excellent website on fire. And if you just say Canadian Forest Service wildland fire, it should get you there. I don't have the the website right beside me, but if you Google or Bing that, I'm sure it will get there. Or Canadian Wildland Fire Information System should get you there as well. Thank you so much. We'll have to wrap up there. Our guest on Radio Ecoshock has been Canadian wildfire expert Dr. Mike Flanagan. He was editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Wildland Fire from 2002 to 2008. He's been a leader with the U.S. National Assessment on Global Change and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. He's got over 200 published papers in his career so far. So, Dr. Flanagan, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. My pleasure. That was Canadian fire expert Michael Flanagan, first broadcast in May 2011 and still true 12 years later. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock with your host, Alex Smith. Next up, two of the great fire gurus from down under, Andrew Sullivan and David Bauman. These interviews have been edited for length. I will post links to download the full interviews in my show blog at ecoshock.org. We begin with Dr. Sullivan, first broadcast in March 2022. Wildfires far beyond normal are coming. The latest summary of fire science comes in a new report from the UN Environmental Program and the Norwegian nonprofit called Grid Arenda. Australians already live the new fiery future. That is where we reached one of the principal authors of this report, one of the leading wildfire experts in the world, Dr. Andrew Sullivan. He leads the Bushfire Behavior and Risks team at CSIRO, the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization. From Canberra, Australia, Andrew Sullivan, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Hey, Eric, how are you doing? Well, it's tough times around the world, so it's hard to say good, but we have some important news here, I think, from the UNEP report. And I want to go back a year. The casualties and the damages in the Australian summer of 2019-2020, they are still stunning. Thousands of buildings burned, hundreds of people dead, some from smoke, perhaps a billion animals killed. How does that major fire season work into this new report from the United Nations 
Well, it's a, it's a good example of the scale of wildfire events that we're likely to see more of by the end of the century. You know, an unusual forest fire just missed an operating nuclear reactor in South Korea. The Florida panhandle's burning. The Copernicus uh, Satellite Service reports record high fire intensity in South America in the first three months of this year. Is this normal, Andrew? Or when And when it comes to wildfires, should we expect normal anymore? That's a that's a good question. Um, and in many instances, there probably isn't such a thing as normal. There's average, and that average, I think we can safely say, is changing. Uh, the The expectation of the frequency of wildfires and their severity is is expected to increase um, under climate change. And by the end of this century, you're expecting the frequency of, of such fires, such devastating fires, to increase by about 30 to 50% uh, over the, the current experience. But there are some surprises in the report. For example, we can't simply say everywhere we'll see more wildfires, can we? No, that's right. The, the 30 to 50% is the global average. So some instances we'll see significant increases in the occurrence of wildfires. Other places may see a decrease in uh, the, the occurrence of wildfires. So it, it's like wildfires themselves, they're rather complex beasts, and the, uh, the impact that we expect of wildfires is, is likely to be very complex. So we can't simply say that everywhere is going to experience more fires. The variability in the climate and the variability in the, in the impact of the climate on vegetation means that the result on wildfires is going to be highly variable as well around the globe. Well, some regions actually get wetter as the climate shifts. You would think that protects them from wildfires, but is that necessarily true? Not not necessarily true. Because of the variability that we see in the climate, we will have wetter periods which can encourage more growth, but there's also likely to be drier periods that, that follow. So it's possible that those areas that see an average increase in rainfall can still experience dry periods in which that extra growth that occurred during the wetter period is now available as fuel. So it, it, it's one of these very, very complex dynamics that, that wildfires sort of uh, are a result of um, in terms of the impact of the climate on the vegetation and the, the impact of the climate on the fire conditions as well. They, they, it is not a very simple dynamic to, to try to understand. But it's true large fires have burned here on Earth for eons. Are we really seeing anything new? It's one of the difficult components that we had in preparing the report was we understand that fire in the landscape is a very common event in the world. And for the most part, the vast majority of those fires that burn freely in the landscape do not cause a concern. They may be accidental, they may be a result of natural ignition such as dry lightning, or they may be intentional. But more than 90% of the fires that occur annually around the globe aren't what we would necessarily call a wildfire because they may be uncontrolled, but they're not necessarily causing a concern for social, economic or ecological reasons. So we wouldn't define them for the purposes of our report as a wildfire. What we defined as wildfires are those free-burning fires in the landscape that do cause a concern, either for, for social impacts, either they're affecting lives and livelihoods, or they're affecting infrastructure, or they may be an environmental impact. That's what we defined as wildfire, and it's a very small percentage of the total number of fires that occur across the globe during the year. Yeah, you know, I'd almost like to add climate change in there. I know there's some debate. I mean, the vegetation grows back. It reabsorbs the carbon that's emitted in the fires, we're told. But sometimes the vegetation is not growing back properly for various reasons. So if you have a giant fire that doesn't affect humans, but let's say it's up in the boreal and it's roaring, might that not change the carbon balance even on the short term? Oh, very definitely. There are lots of examples of fires that... For the most part, nobody would actually call them a concern because they're not spreading very fast and they don't produce flames very high. And, and in particular, I'm talking here about peat fires, either in the Arctic or, or tropical locations. Those fires spread at centimetres an hour. They're, they're very small, but there's nobody around to do anything about them and they can burn for months and months and months and they can release a huge amount of carbon that would normally have been stored in the organic layers of the soil. Those are the fires that we also want to call wildfires because they do 
very much cause an environmental concern. And we've seen lots of examples in the past where peat fires, particularly in tropical uh, Southeast Asia, have released huge amounts of particulates into the air and, and created enormous health issues for, for populations that, that are impacted by the smoke that's released by that. So I, I would agree that there are some fires that, while not a direct impact on humans as such in terms of their lives and, and livelihoods, but they do have impacts either ecologically or, or in terms of long-term health for many people who are a long, long way from where the fire actually occurs. When your team looks at the global map for increasing wildfire danger, what are the hot spots, so to speak, where populations and governments may have to try to adapt to a new fire regime? There are lots of very specific locations around the, the, the world where the modelling that was done uh, in the UK suggested that the threat of wildfires in the future is going to increase significantly. What came out of that analysis was there are some regions that you would not have previously thought were a danger uh, in terms of wildfire. One of these was the Middle East. Another was India, so the subcontinent, Mm. and northern Russia, Siberia. So places like that would not have traditionally been thought to have been a wildfire hotspot, say, not like what you'd call Australia or or, uh, Canada or, or the US, but they are increasingly being affected by wildfires and they're happening in those places that don't have a history of dealing with wildfires. So they've got a major hurdle to overcome, not just the impact of the fire itself, but what to do about it. They don't have a history of managing wildfires. So the important thing that came out of the report is that many of these areas that are newly being affected by wildfires can learn a lot from what's been occurring elsewhere in the world. They can also teach other places that have been affected by wildfires. So the, the, the true message that comes out of the report is that there are lessons to be learnt by everybody everywhere. There is no single jurisdiction in the, in the world that solved the problem of wildfires. So the important bit is we need to learn about wildfires and learn to uh, live with wildfires, basically, undertake the steps necessary to reduce the risks as much as possible, but also realise that you cannot reduce that risk to zero you need to be able to deal with the residual risk of wildfires when they do occur. Firefighters need to know how fast fires will spread. In fact, we all need to know that in order to guide evacuations. How well can experts predict fire speed these days? Well, I would say we can predict the speed of fires in most vegetation types pretty well. Various places around the world have different ways of doing that. In Australia, we've got what we call fuel-specific fire spread models. So we've got fire spread models for specific fuel types. So we have a grassland fire spread model or a forest fire spread model. And those models, given the nature of fire behaviour and the, the variability both in terms of the inputs that go into determining a fire and the vagaries of fire combustion itself... We've found that we can predict pretty well, and and the measure of pretty well is in the order of about plus or minus 35% of the actual speed. Some of the models do far better than that, and there are some models that struggle, but it's primarily because we don't actually know the conditions in which the fire is burning. So the uncertainties that are involved in the inputs, and the inputs are quite complex, It's the nature of the fuel and it's the weather that's driving it and the specific locations about where that fire actually is. So all of those uncertainties mean that the predictions have some uncertain bounds on them, but the nature of the fire uh, is, is pretty well understood and I think we've been able to predict fairly well the, the rate of propagation of, of wildfires and the direction of propagation of wildfires. Even though there have been some terrible fires and a lot of video on the news, people do continue to move into the forest interface zone and suburbs spring up among the trees. Isn't the fire situation a little like coastal flooding? Death and damage is worse because we move into the danger zone. It's certainly one of the factors that's increasing uh, fire risk globally and more generally we would describe that as land use change. So that's both in terms of people moving into areas that were predominantly, you know, at risk from fire, but it's also people moving away from rural areas. So fires that do occur are now getting bigger because there's nobody there to do anything about them. So that that dynamic of the change in, in populations and the use of land is one of the big factors along with climate change as to why our fire risk is changing so rapidly and expected to change so significantly by the end of the century. 
From another of your past papers, I learned a key thing. I think when a bushfire is over, it is far from over. Talk to us about the health impacts and ecological damage that continues long after the flames subside. The interesting thing about fires, in contrast to flood, is that the sphere of influence of a fire is much, much larger than the actual fire itself. So an average fire might might burn, no, not the average fire, but a, but a significant fire might burn 100,000 hectares, say. But the sphere of influence of the effect of that fire could be 10, 100 times that area in terms of people impacted by the smoke that that fire generated, the damage that that fire has done on uh, the infrastructure that then affects larger um, populations. The scaling up of the impact of a fire is, is quite significant in some places, so even even a small fire can have a huge impact depending on where it is and what it burns. Floods generally only affect the area where the where the where the flood is. It's not one of those phenomena that has a, has a huge knock-on effect. One of the key things that came out of the UNEP report that we, we recently published was the health costs associated with wildfires, particularly extensive wildfires, is, is, is runs up into the billions where you're getting lots of people who don't even get to see the flames that are significantly affected by the smoke with um, cardiovascular issues. And as an example, the 2019-20 fire season in Australia had, I think it was like 33 fatalities in direct result of the fires, but the fatalities afterwards as a result of the health impacts from the smoke that was released, it was in the order of 450 to 500 people. And so the cost associated with the, the second order health impacts of fires is quite significant and when you consider places like um, Indonesia where when they have a delay in the the wet season arriving and the the peat fires take hold it can release huge amounts of particulate matter into the atmosphere that can affect really large areas and those areas happen to have really high populations so you can you can imagine that the the health impacts of those sorts of events can be quite significant the cost is, is is monumental. Yes, the Indonesian fires went all the way to Singapore and Malaysia, as I recall. You are tuned to Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. We're talking about the new report, The Rising Threat of Extraordinary Landscape Fires. Our guest is one of the premier wildfire experts, Dr. Andrew Sullivan from CISRO in Australia. So according to the new report, there will be 30% more extreme fires by 2050 because of climate change. Andrew, is it possible for governments to prepare for that? It's something that they need to prepare for, I think. The first step is understanding what the problem is and how to address it. Now, the, there's a significant amount of work that's gone into trying to understand the factors that, that drive the behaviour and occurrence of, of wildfires. The analysis that was presented in that report is based on more than just climate changes. There's, there's elements in there of um, the, the land use change, as I said. There's, there's another factor that, that influences the, the, the risk profile of, of wildfires. But the important bit is that steps can be done to reduce the, the propensity for wildfires breaking out and increase the effectiveness of mitigation steps to try to reduce their impact. So that thing, that includes things like uh, ignition control measures and fuel management to reduce the, the intensity of fires and as well as um, suppression of fires when they, uh, when they do break out. When fires strike in developed countries, places like California, people may be helped by insurance or government aid and some manage to rebuild. But what is the situation in less developed regions where people contribute so little to global warming gases? It's a major risk in in developing countries, and fires have been identified as as a major um, problem in those developing countries to try to to reach um, the development goals. The impact of fire on social, economic, and, and environmental values in developing countries can have a much lasting effect, much longer lasting effect than they would in developed countries. But that being said, the impacts in developed countries can also be quite significant. And as I said earlier, there's no one country in the world that solved the problem. And the solution to those problems isn't a technological solution in and of itself. It needs to be part of a suite of, of approaches to address the fire problem at all the different 
um, intersections in the, the the process. So that's about communities understanding what their, their fire risk is, understanding the necessity for steps to be put in place to mitigate uh, fire risk, understanding what the, the cost of those mitigation steps are, and understanding that there will be a residual risk of fire that they need to be able to deal with. And so that that goes everything from up from the individual householder right up to government. There's a, there's a continuous chain of responsibility required to be able to address the increasing threat of wildfires around the world. In 2013, I interviewed British Columbia silviculturalist John Betts, and John stressed the need to control forest fuels before the superfires develop rather than spending the money after to put them out. And I see this in the UNEP report. Are we misspending some of our money for fire protection? That's a question to be asked of of each individual government. Generally speaking, there is a propensity to wait until the fire starts before money is is spent, and that money is generally spent on suppression of that fire. And for the most part, the effort put into suppression when wildfires are burning at their extreme is not going to have much an effect on the behaviour of that fire until the weather starts to moderate. But You can do a lot more before that fire breaks out to manage the fuels and reduce the hazard that is presented by those fuels such that if a fire was to break out, it'd have have a a lower probability of being a successful outbreak and you would increase the effectiveness of the suppression that you did undertake to try to stop that fire when when it did start. So there's there is definitely across the world an imbalance in where investment is. And the recommendation coming out of the report is that there needs to be more money spent in that earlier phase of planning and preparation and reduction of risk before wildfires break out to reduce the impact of those fires. And the impact of those fires is hundreds of orders of magnitude greater than the costs that are spent on managing fires. This is a big report from the UN, and it's a good summary of the best uh, fire science that we know so far. Does it also look at the impacts on wild animals and plants? There is a section in the report that, that looks at that. So the, the report, as you say, is, is quite significant. There's, there's more than 50 authors from around the world, more than 37 organisations, and almost 30 countries uh, contributed to that report. And we use case studies from various parts of the world to look at the various impacts that fires have and various steps that different countries have taken to try to address that. One of the case studies looks at the impact of fires on animals and flora and fauna. The, the complexity that, that, that is involved in that, as, as explained earlier, there's lots of complexity, is that there are many ecosystems around the world that actually require fire to uh, be healthy. So it's not just a matter of excluding fire. The fire needs to be there, but what we need to do is control the sorts of fires that do occur such that ecosystems can continue to function healthily, but they don't have deleterious impacts. And associated with those ecosystems is is the fauna um, involved. As we saw with the the 2019-20 fire season in Australia, the the sheer extent of those fires meant that many animals uh, had no refuge from the, the heat of the flames and the, the fatalities involved in the animals was, was quite horrendous uh, in, in magnitude. So what we need to be able to do is, is manage the risk of those fires in such a way that animals have refuge and, and paths of egress out of the path of any fire that does occur to ensure that they've got a way to, to, to survive the fire event. And, and that is very specific to the, each uh, ecosystem around the world. And what are you working on now? Just tell us that as we wrap this up. Well, we've just completed construction of a new lab that houses the Pyrotron that you mentioned earlier, and we're actually next week having a, a virtual opening of, of uh, the facility, which is uh, a big focus for, for me at the moment. But more generally, we're focusing on improving our understanding of various aspects of fire behaviour and refining the fire spread models that we've developed and that are used operationally for predicting the spread of fire across the landscape. From CISRO in Australia, we've been speaking with wildfire expert Dr Andrew Sullivan. You can find links to read the new UNAP report, Wildfire, 
The Rising Threat of Extraordinary Landscape Fires in my show blog at ecoshock.org and, of course, at unep.org. Andrew, thank you for sharing your valuable time with us. Thanks, Alex. It's my pleasure. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. Check out the Radio Ecoshock website. We're at ecoshock.org. Just heard Dr. Andrew Sullivan from Radio Ecoshock broadcast March 2022. Find links to follow up in my show blog. Next, we hear from Tasmania. Dr. David Bauman is a world-respected fire expert. We talked in January 2013. Professor David Bauman is at the University of Tasmania in Hobart. He teaches and researches forest ecology. He's a published expert on fire in the Earth system. David, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Hi, how are you going? Well, it's going pretty well here. It's it's wet here as opposed to what you're having. And I wanted to ask you, before we get to the science, is that kind of 40-degree heat and fire normal to Tasmania? No. That day I was actually out in the wilderness and I was telling my buddies that something absolutely catastrophic was happening. All of the switches were on for a fire catastrophe. And what was spooky for me, because I was uncontactable, is that I didn't learn about the fire disasters around Hobart until I got out 10 days later. We were safe, but the fact that the environment was tinder dry, the winds were very, very strong, the heat was excessive. So excessive, in fact, that around Hobart, some of the more sensitive plants have actually died off. Just from the heat, not burning. From the heat, not the drought. My, my. So what is your impression of the public reaction? Are people worried by this? Has it raised the talk about possible climate change? Yeah, well, there's two answers. I felt a moral dilemma because I knew this was going to happen. So a year ago, I wrote an article saying, I know a fire disaster will happen. I don't know when. I am certain that it's related to climate change, but I can't necessarily prove that. And that actually made me personally feel very good. And of course, it was passed unnoticed. A year later, it happened. Then the issue becomes politicised because the different political teams want to put different accents or emphases on this tragic event. And and as a scientist, it's very important to give a tragic event a wide berth. It's not the time to my way of thinking, you know, trying to argue the toss about whether it is or isn't. That particular event is or isn't climate change. But that's why I felt pleased that I was able to say it in a very neutral way a year ago when nobody was taking any notice. The awareness of fire in Australia has shot through the roof. And I think for thinking people, they're beginning to join the dots. They're looking at the landscapes that they're living in and realising that some of the landscapes are way more vulnerable to a catastrophe than the fire that occurred, for instance, at Dunalley, where that extraordinary image of the family sheltering from a fire... It literally was a firestorm. It was something outside the bounds of normality for fire behaviour. It hit fast and hard. It would have killed many people were it not for the fact that it was on a little peninsula, uh, which has had a channel cut through it, and so everybody was able to take refuge into the water. Now, the weird thing about the Dunalley fire is that that's not a bushland setting. It's just a rural, it's got eucalypts and it's got bushland around it, but it's not the iconic bush settlement. It's not what you would think of as being highly vulnerable to a catastrophic bushfire. I've taken journalists who visited Tasmania to places that I say, you want to see where a catastrophic bushfire is going to occur. I take them to them and, and they get it very quickly, you know, dead-end valleys, heavily settled, covered with eucalypts, you know, one spark and the whole damn thing is just going to kill everybody. Well, and it's happened before in Australia. Back in 2009, 173 did die. But here's something that's that, that's puzzling me. Australia, I thought, just got some relief from that long-standing drought with a couple of wet seasons. How did such extreme fire conditions come up so quickly? Yeah, well, that's actually interesting. A discovery that fire ecologists around the world have actually made is that, and again, uh, I applied this logic and popularized it in the media, the discovery is that what's called antecedent rainfall, if you get two or three wet years, 
in the popular imagination, that's good for fire. But in a fire ecologist thinking, that's bad because what you're doing is you're growing a superabundance of fuel. Really, it's the departure from those wet periods, what the, the climatic departure looks like. Is it abrupt and going into very dry or does it sort of gradually tail off? Are there enough animals to eat all of the fuel? Are you able to use fire to reduce the fuel and so on? And what happened here is that we had this enormous quantity of growth after a very, very long drought. And then we got, as I said, a couple of these very hot days which hayed off the grass and basically converted all of the fuel in the landscape, which was reasonably moist because there hadn't been a drought, to tinder. It's a terrible combination to have very wet periods, lush growth, followed by very extreme heat waves. <laughs> this is fascinating stuff. From Hobart, Tasmania, we've been chatting with Dr. David Bowman. He's a professor of forest ecology at the School of Plant Science at the University of Tasmania. I'll put a link to his profile in my Radio EcoShock blog. At David, it's been so good talking to you across this great Pacific Ocean that we share. I'm Alex Smith for Radio EcoShock. That interview with David Bauman was edited for length. You can download or pass on all these interviews using easy links in my show blog, posted Wednesdays at EcoShock.org. We're out of time. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for listening and caring about our world. I'm Naomi Klein, and you are listening to KBOO Portland 90.7 FM. KBOO Radio is hiring. We are accepting applications for an engagement coordinator. The engagement coordinator is responsible for sharing KBOO's mission and values across a variety of social media platforms. They also share content created by volunteers and co-sponsors. We are looking for individuals who have skills writing marketing copy and creating and editing graphic and multimedia content. To apply, send your resume and cover letter to hiring at kboo.org. Applications are due by midnight, Sunday, June 4th. KBU is an equal opportunity and affirmative action employer. For more information, go to kboo.fm slash engagement hire. Welcome to Sprouts Radio from the Grassroots, a weekly program that showcases radio production